Turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Colossians. Our text today is Colossians 2, verses 6 through 23. But before we hear the reading and preaching of God's Word, let's pray and ask God for His help to understand what He says to us today. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, in You are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Open our eyes that we may see the wonders of your word and give us grace that we may clearly understand and freely choose the way of your wisdom. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Colossians 2 verses 6 through 23. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him. And established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God." If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive to the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, age fifth grade and lower, you can come up and join me. Welcome. Good to see you all. Yeah, come on up. Plenty of room. Yeah, there you go. Spread it around. All right, 
Got a question for you. Do your parents ever forget things? What do they forget? The bags. The, the bags, yeah, like grocery bags. Yeah, what else? This is your chance, guys. <laughs> yeah? Pretty much everything. Pretty much everything. Yeah, fair enough. What about you? Do you ever forget things? You forgot your bag. Ah, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, we humans are forgetful creatures. We forget where we left our keys. We forget names of people that we just met. Sometimes parents forget a kid at church. I've seen that happen. We even forget to wear deodorant sometimes. But in the passage that we just read... Paul wants God's people to remember something super important. He wants us to never forget our baptism. Because our baptism is pointing us toward all of God's promises to us in Jesus. And baptism confirms that those promises really do belong to us. God's promise to forgive and to save Everyone who comes to Jesus, who puts their hope in him, he, that's his promise to us in baptism. And that's the promise that he puts on to us as his people. But sometimes we forget his promises. Like when we are being tempted, when I'm being tempted to disobey God and just do whatever I feel like doing, I forget his promises to me. Or I forget his promise when I've already sinned. We find it hard to believe that God really does forgive us for Jesus' sake when we've messed it all up again, right? We feel that. When Satan whispers in my ear, you've done too much. God can't possibly love a sinner like you. And my own heart is afraid that he's right. In that moment, it is easy to forget God's promises to me in Jesus. It's been said that Martin Luther, he was one of the pastors during the the beginning of the Reformation. He felt that same fear. He was afraid sometimes because of his sin. Like you and me, he knew that he was a sinner, a big one. But then he'd remember what we're talking about now. He would say to himself, when he felt that fear, he would say to himself, I am baptized. I am a Christian. And remembering God's promises to him in his baptism would lift up his heart and it would fill him up again with hope. And you can do the same. You might forget where you left your toys. You might forget your lunchbox at school sometime. But always remember your baptism because in it God is telling you that for you, Jesus Christ came into the world. For you, he lived and died. For you, he triumphed over death and he rose in newness of life. And for you, he ascended to reign at God's right hand. All this he did for you before you knew any of it. Because God, forgive, because God gives forgetful people like you and me baptism to assure us that he really is saving us in Jesus. That's another reason why we call this good news. Do you believe it? All right, thanks guys. You can go back to your seat.
If you've not done so already, open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. We are in the last part of a series on the doctrine of salvation that we've been in for the past several months. And you'll remember that to this point we have looked at our need for salvation. We have looked at the person and the work of the Savior. Uh, We've looked at all the manifold blessings of his work and how we receive those benefits, namely through faith and repentance. And in this last part of the series, we are considering the means of grace that God has given us whereby we might sustain and whereby we might strengthen that faith by which we receive the blessings of Christ's finished work. And so we are considering the means of grace. And to this point, uh, we have considered God's Word as a means of grace. We saw its, its power, that it is the power of God unto salvation, that it's useful for, for teaching and for reproofing and for uh, correcting and for training in righteousness. And that we make use of it, uh, especially when it is preached and as we meditate upon what we hear. Well, this morning, we want to consider baptism as another means of grace that God has given to us. Now in my experience, this is not the way we normally think about baptism. When we talk about baptism, our our concerns are most often what I might call procedural. That is, we want to know who should receive baptism. Should we baptize the infant children of believers, or or should we baptize only people who have made a a personal profession of faith? And we want to know how they should be baptized. Should they be baptized by immersion in water, or is it proper to baptize a person by sprinkling or, or pouring water over their head? These are procedural questions. Who is baptized? How are they baptized? Well, these are not the questions that I am concerned with this morning. If you've been here at Trinity very long, or if you are at all familiar with Presbyterianism, you probably know that we practice what what we call covenantal baptism. That is, we baptize the infant children of believers by pouring water over their heads because we believe that baptism is a sign and seal of God's covenant promises, promises made uh, to the people of God, to all who will receive and rest upon His promised covenant Messiah. Of course, we also baptize those who, who make a profession of faith, and you've seen both uh, in the last few months. However, my concern this morning is not to explain our practice of baptism. Rather, what I want us to focus on this morning, and what I want us to to really meditate on, is how we use our baptism. That is, I want to talk about your baptism as a means of grace. And I hope that that what we see this morning will be beneficial to you, whether you uh, were baptized as an infant, or whether you were baptized later in life after you made your own personal profession of faith. Because whatever your view of the procedures of baptism, how you do baptism and and who gets baptized, whatever your view of those questions, the question I want us to focus on this morning is, does your baptism serve you? Do, Do you use it? Is it to you a real means of grace? I suspect that that 
is an odd way of talking about baptism. It's, it's not what we are used to. Most of us don't think of our baptism as something that we use or even something that we're supposed to use. But the idea of using your baptism actually has a long history in the church. Sam mentioned Luther. We, we see something similar in our own catechism. Our, our, our larger catechism, which was written in the 1640s, a long time ago, question 167 asks, how is our baptism to be improved by us? Now the answer states that the needful but much neglected duty of improving our baptism is to be performed by us all our life long especially in the time of temptation and when we are present at the administration of it to others. And so our catechism refers to improving our baptism. Now, admittedly, the the catechism is using that language of improve in a way that is a bit unusual in our day. We think of improving something as as making it better. We, We think of the products that are new and improved. Obviously, we can't improve our baptism in that way. We, we can't make our baptism better. Our, our baptism is a past-completed event. But the, the catechism is using that language of, of improve in an older sense, an older sense that means to profit from. And so what the, the catechism is talking about is it's talking about using your baptism to your profit. How do you use your baptism so that you profit from it? Or, as we've been saying in this series, how do you use your baptism as a means of grace? And the answer that the larger catechism gives to that question is is quite dense, as most larger catechism answers are. But I've printed it for you there on the, the bulletin insert. In fact, I think it got so long that you don't even have my full outline on that insert. But... Um, you can see the, uh, the answer there from the, from the larger catechism. It, it gives us a very detailed and, and dense answer. We improve our baptism by the serious and thankful consideration of the nature of it and of the ends for which Christ instituted it, the privileges and the benefits conferred and sealed thereby, and our solemn vows made it therein. We improve our baptism by being humbled for our sinful defilement are falling short of and walking contrary to the grace of baptism and our engagements. We improve our baptism by growing up to assurance of pardon of sin and all other blessings sealed to us in that sacrament. And we improve our baptism by drawing strength from the death and resurrection of Christ into whom we were baptized for the mortifying of sin and the quickening of grace. And finally, we improve our baptism by endeavoring to live by faith, to have our conversation, that is, our our manner of life, in holiness and righteousness, as those who have therein given up their names to Christ, and to walk in brotherly love as being baptized by the same Spirit into one body. We could spend a, a long time on unpacking all of that, but I think we can, we can summarize this somewhat long and, and maybe awkward answer in our, to our modern ears by, by saying that we improve our baptisms or we use our baptisms by remembering the, the promises of God that have been sealed to us in baptism and by remembering our need for that grace, our ongoing need for that grace, and by trusting that that grace that we so desperately need is in fact ours. Because the one who made the promise is 
faithful. That's what it means to, to improve our baptism. We improve our baptism by remembering it and by remembering all that it signs and seals to those who have received and rested upon Jesus Christ for our salvation. That's what the, the catechism is getting at. It's, it's, it's calling on us to, to improve our baptism in, in the sense of making use of it by remembering it. And so you see that this idea of, of using our baptism is an old one. But I want to suggest to you this morning that it goes back farther than just to the Reformation. In fact, I want to suggest to you that it, it goes back as far as the Apostle Paul, because here in this text, here in Colossians chapter 2, while he doesn't use that phrase, he is actually calling on the Colossians to do just that. He is calling on the Colossians to use their baptism. To use their baptism as a means of grace so that they might be strengthened to walk in a manner worthy of their Lord. So let's, let's look at the text together. And to, and to really see what Paul is doing... We have to first note the context, the, the context of, of what's going on here in Colossians chapter 2. And to, and to do that, we have to go back. There's a therefore there at the beginning of, of chapter 6. And that therefore points us back into the previous chapter. It points us back into what Paul has been saying up to this point. And if you are familiar with Paul's letters, you know that, that Paul almost always begins his letter with this uh, exalted uh, in, uh, statement of, of all that God has done for us in Christ. And so therefore, we need to remember that in, in chapter 1 of this letter, Paul told the Colossians that they had been delivered from the dominion of darkness. This is what you heard this morning uh, in the uh, assurance of pardon. You have been delivered from the dominion of darkness and qualified for an inheritance in the kingdom of the beloved Son, because in Him you have redemption. The forgiveness of your sins. That is, that is Paul's gospel proclamation to the Colossians in chapter 1. And it's in light of that gospel, it's in light of the reality of all that Christ has done for them, that he says in verse 6 here of chapter 2, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. That's what Paul is calling the Colossians to. He says, you've, you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, and in Him you've received every spiritual blessing. In Him you have been qualified for an inheritance in the, the kingdom of the, uh, of the beloved Son. In Him you have everything that you need. Therefore now walk in Him. Walk in a manner worthy of His name. Walk in a manner worthy of this gospel that you have believed. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord into whom you have been baptized. That's the context. That's what Paul is calling the Colossians to. He's calling them to, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And it's in this context that he warns them against philosophy and, and empty deceit. He, he warns them there in verse 8 saying, do not let anyone take you captive by philosophy or empty deceit. Now, to be taken captive is, is to be Bound. It's to be hindered. It's to be prevented from doing what Paul has just called them to do. To be taken captive is to be prevented from walking in Christ. It's, it's similar to the language that we hear in Hebrews chapter 12. You remember oh, what we're told there. We're, we're told to put off the sins that so easily entangle us. Those sins that, that bind us. Those, those sins that keep us from running well the race that has been marked out for us. Well, that's exactly what, what Paul is getting at here. He says, do not let anyone bind you. Do not let anyone capture you. You do not let anyone hinder you from, from walking in Christ. 
You have received Him as Lord. Now honor Him with your lives. And so he's warning them against the philosophies and the the empty deceit that might bind them and keep them from living a life worthy of their Lord. And what is that philosophy? Well, notice it's it's not philosophy per se. You know, as one who studied philosophy in college, I I like to point out that he's not saying philosophy is, is bad essentially. But rather, there's a type of philosophy that bad. There's a type of, of, of philosophy that is, that is nothing more than empty deceit. And that is a philosophy that is not according to Christ. It's a philosophy that is not according to the truth, but rather according to the elemental spirits. It's translated here. Same word translated in Galatians is, is translated as elementary principles. But it's, 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 a, it's a philosophy that's not according to Christ, but rather is according to the wisdom of this world. That's according to the elementary, the elemental uh, spirits and, and principles of this world. So what are those elementary spirits? What are those elementary principles that, that Paul is warning us against? Well, you'll remember in, in Galatians chapter 4, when we looked at the benefit of adoption, we, we saw this same word, and there we, we saw that, that to return to the elementary principles... To return to these elementary spirits is to return to the regulations of the law. It's to put yourself back under the law. It's to, it's to put yourself in the position of having to establish your own righteousness before God by your own works and obedience. That's what it is to, to submit to the, the, the regulations of this world because the world thinks in terms of merit. It thinks in terms of, of works righteousness. And Paul is warning uh, the Galatians, and here again, warning the Colossians not to put themselves back under the law. They have been qualified in Christ. Don't put yourself back in a position of having to qualify yourself. Don't cut yourself off from Christ by, by seeking to qualify yourself through the law. That's what he says in, in verse 16. Notice what he says. He says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or, or drink or festivals or new moons or Sabbaths. Don't put yourself back under those elements of the law. Or verse 20, he says, if with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits, why do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are expressions of that empty and deceitful philosophy that bind us and keep us from walking in the Lord, because they are expressions of a deceitful, self-made religion, as he calls it there in verse 23. A religion that's not according to Christ, but according to the world. A religion that he says is powerless, powerless to, to actually help us Walk in the Lord. And so this empty philosophy that will, that will keep us from walking in, in Christ is the empty philosophy of works righteousness. And, and we need to see this. We, we, we need to, to see what, what Paul is warning us against here. What is going to prevent us from, from walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. It is self-made religion. It is man-made religion. And all man-made religions are religions of self-righteousness. But in being a religion of self-righteousness, they actually work against righteousness. For while they have the appearance of wisdom, Paul says, they are powerless to stop the indulgence of the flesh. Like I said, that's, that's counterintuitive. It, it goes against the way we, we naturally think. We think that making the law obligatory... 
will, will, will make it more potent, will make it more powerful in our lives. If we have to do this in order, to, in order for God to approve of us, in order for God to, to love us, in order for God to receive us into his kingdom, then, then certainly we'll be more likely to do it. That's the way our mind works. That's the wisdom of this world. But, but making the law obligatory actually works against righteousness. We worry that grace will lead to unrighteousness because why would anybody obey if they didn't have to? That's the, that's the way the world thinks. That's the lie of, of Satan. But the truth is exactly the opposite. Grace grows obedience. The law undermines it. The law spoils it. It is God's grace that makes us holy. It is God's grace that brings forth in us the, uh, the abundant harvest of, of righteousness. Obedience is, is part of the salvation that God is giving in us. It's, it's, it's His grace that is conforming us to the image of Christ. It's His grace that is working all things together towards that glorious and good end. I suspect that you have, have experienced this in your own pursuit of, of holiness. When you focus on the law, when you focus on what you must do, how often is that effective? How long does that work? A day, maybe? A week, if you're really self-disciplined? But eventually, that, that, that crushes us. Eventually, that, that leads us to despair. It is God's grace. It is tasting the, the goodness of the Lord. It is seeing His, his beauty. It is hearing the, the melody of His law. It is His grace that leads us into righteousness. And that's exactly what Paul understands. Paul understands that it is the gospel of God that trains us for righteousness. And so therefore, he is warning the Colossians not to be taken captive by these empty philosophies, by these deceitful philosophies that suggest that we must do this or do that, keep this or, or keep that, in order to establish our own righteousness before God. Because he says the moment that you seek to establish your own righteousness, you cut yourself off from Christ. And you cut yourself off from the very source of righteousness that you think that you are pursuing. And so, you must keep obedience in the right place. If, 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 with respect to your relationship to God, you must, you must keep obedience where it belongs. It doesn't, it doesn't belong on this side of the equation. It doesn't belong on the side that says this is what we bring to God in order that he might bless us. But rather the obedience for which our hearts long, the, the obedience, the righteousness after which we hunger and thirst, it is part of the gift that he is giving us. It is what we receive by Grace. We don't bring obedience to God. He gives it to us. And when, we, and when we get that backwards, we lose the gospel. And when we lose the gospel, we lose the power of the gospel. And we fall into self-made religion that has the appearance of wisdom, but is actually powerless to stop the indulgence of the flesh. This is what Paul Knows. This is the, the context of, of what he is doing here in Colossians chapter 2. He's, he's trying to get the Colossians to remember the gospel because he knows it's only the gospel that will truly empower them to walk in the Lord. And so with that in mind, let's look at our second point. Because our second point here is that, that understanding that self-made religion is powerless, uh, Paul calls upon the Colossians to remember their baptism, to use their baptism, 
so that they might keep hold of the gospel. That's what we see beginning in verse 11. Notice again what he writes. It may not be immediately obvious to you, but but follow his logic. He writes in verse 11. He says, And then also you were circumcised. Do not be taken captive, he says. Because why? Because in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. What's going on here? What's the, what's the logic of what, of what Paul is doing here? Now, just as a, as a side note, it's not my main point this morning, but it's just as a side note, this is one of the passages that I would use uh, to, to show you the, the, the continuity between circumcision in the Old Testament as the covenant sign and, and baptism in the New Testament as the covenant sign. Because we see this in Paul's use of verbs. Notice again what he says. He says, you were circumcised. That's a past completed action. You have been circumcised. Now, that would have come as news to the Colossians. What do you mean I have been circumcised? Well, well, he says, hey, I'm not talking about physical circumcision. I'm not talking about a circumcision done with hands, but I'm talking about a handless circumcision, a, a spiritual circumcision, the circumcision of Christ. So he's telling the Colossians that they don't need to get physically circumcised. They don't need to, to conform to the physical law because they have been effectively circumcised. How? They have been circumcised in Christ. And when did this happen? When were they circumcised in this spiritual way? Well, again, notice Paul's use of verbs. Notice the participle at the beginning of verse 12. They were circumcised when they were baptized. You have been circumcised, he says, having been baptized. So having been circumcised, or having been baptized, they have been circumcised. That's the connection. Paul is telling the the Gentile, New Testament believers, they don't need to submit to physical circumcision because they have been effectively circumcised and they were effectively circumcised when they were baptized. But again, that's that's not my main point here this morning. Rather, my main point is simply the fact that Paul is, is calling them to remember that they have been baptized. They have been baptized. And he is calling on them to to remember that baptism in order to strengthen them to walk in Christ, to walk in a manner worthy of their Lord. That's what he says. He says, in their baptism, they have been buried with Christ. And if they were buried with him, then they are also going to be raised. They've also been raised with him. They have been united to him in his death, and they are united to him in his resurrection. To be united to Christ is to be united to him in his resurrection. Fullness. This is the, the point that we, we uh, lingered on all last year on Wednesday night as we were studying Sinclair Ferguson's The Whole Christ. When you are united to Christ, you are united to the whole Christ. When you are united to Christ, you are united to Christ in His fullness. If you are united to Him in His death, then you are united to Him in His resurrection. If you are united to Him by faith, then every spiritual blessing that He has secured for you as your prophet, priest, and king is yours. You cannot have one blessing without having them all. If you are in Christ, you are in Christ. And the fullness of Christ, the fullness of what He has done for His people is yours. This is what our baptism reminds us of. We have been baptized into Christ. We've been baptized into His name. And it's what Paul is reminding the Colossians of. If they have been united to Him in His death, if they've been forgiven by His blood, then they are also united to Him by his resurrection life, in His resurrection life. And therefore, they now have everything they need to walk in a manner worthy of their Lord. 
It's the point that he drives home there in, in beginning in verse 13. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses and canceling the record of death that stood against you. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. Think about what that disarming means. That disarming is the, the taking away of the accusations. What power does, the, does Satan have? What, what power do his minions have? They, they have the power of accusation. They come to you saying, you're a sinner. You're disqualified. And Paul says, no, every weapon has been taken out of their hands. Every weapon has been taken out of their hands in Christ, at his cross, in Christ through his death and resurrection, they have been disarmed. You are now in Christ and every spiritual blessing is yours. You do not have to qualify yourselves. Rest in him. That's the point that Paul is driving home. The Colossians do not need the law to establish their own righteousness. They are righteous before God. They have been justified. And therefore, being justified, they now have a right to every promised blessing of the covenant. And that's what they need to remember. That's what they need to remember when people come to them and say, no, you need to do this to establish your righteousness with God, or you need to do this to to earn his blessing. No, I've been baptized. I have been baptized. The kingdom is mine. Every spiritual blessing is mine in him. And I am now free not to work for my salvation, but to work out my salvation. I I am now free to walk in him in the power that he so generously supplies. That's what it means to use your baptism, to remember all that is yours in Christ. To remember all that has been promised and sealed to you in that visible, tangible picture of the gospel. And it matters that we do this. It matters that we remember our baptism. It matters that we we remember the gospel, that everything is ours in Christ and in Christ alone. Because as Paul says here, when we begin to to think of, of, of our obedience as what we're paying back to God for all that he's done for us, we cut ourselves off from grace. We cut ourselves off From the power of the gospel, we cut ourselves off from our only true hope of obedience. The law does not produce obedience. Grace does. And therefore, when we remember our baptism, we remember the grace that is sealed to us in our baptism, we are empowered to walk in Christ. So when do we do this? When do we use our baptism? The Catechism mentions two times when we might use our baptism. One, uh, obviously, is when we're present for baptism. When we, when we see baptism uh, administered in a, a church service, when we see a covenant child coming or we see a, a, a new believer coming to, to receive this sign of baptism, we need to remember our own baptism. We need to remember that, 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 that we too were sealed That God too made these promises to us. That's why it's so important to remember that in baptism, whether you're coming as an infant or whether you're coming uh, as uh, one making your own personal profession of faith, baptism is not about what you are saying to God. Baptism is about what God is saying to you. Baptism is a seal of God's promise. If it's about you, you're not going to be able to use it. 
But if it's about the promise of the one who is faithful, then its strength will never fail. Because he is always faithful, even when you are not. And if we remember that baptism is the seal of God's promise, then when we see baptism administered in the church, we can remember those same promises belong to me. But of course, it's not only when we see baptism administered, it's also in that midst of temptation. In the midst of temptation, we are tempted to relate to God as a slave owner rather than a gracious father. We are tempted to to work for his blessing. When we are, are tempted to try to manipulate him by our good works. In those moments, we need to remember, I am already justified. I am already righteous in the eyes of the Father. I am adopted into his family. And every spiritual blessing is already mine. And with Luther, we can say, I am baptized. I do not have to earn my place. I have been qualified. And therefore, whatever I need to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord through this dark valley, it is already mine. Because he who promised it is faithful, and he will not fail to give all that he has promised. That's what it means to use your baptism. That's what it means to improve your baptism. To remember all that has been sealed to you in the gospel. To remember all that is yours by the promise of God. And when we do this, when we remember our baptism, we remember what has been promised to us. Those promises become to us a real means of grace, a means by which our faith is strengthened and sustained and by which the harvest of righteousness is cultivated to the praise of His glory. And because God works through our baptism, because God pours grace into our lives through our baptism, that is one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we thank You for Your grace the grace that has been sealed to us in baptism. Father God, help us to remember that every spiritual blessing is indeed truly ours by faith in Christ alone. Father God, help us to remember this and help us to remember it uh, here when we see a child baptized, but also, Father, when we find ourselves tempted to to think of you uh, as as a severe taskmaster rather than a gracious father. Father, teach us to rely on your grace, that that grace might do its work and bring forth a harvest of righteousness to the praise of your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.